0: This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for Your Life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Thank you very, very much, Savadamati, for a very generous uh, introduction. Um, and welcome to all of you. I feel very happy to see uh, all of you here. And if I can't see you and you're in the next room, uh, welcome to you as well. So yes, I want to talk uh, about the diamond throne, uh, the Vajrasana. I want to talk about it in a number of ways. I want to explore different um, ways of looking at what the diamond throne, what the Vajrasana is. and I want to start off by looking at it historically, looking at what is meant by uh, the historical Vajrasana. Uh, and in a way, this is probably, in a way, the first meaning of the Vajrasana. Because the Vajrasana, the diamond throne, uh, is the seat uh, on which, upon which the Buddha gained enlightenment. It's, it's the... Uh, I mean, he didn't actually sit on a seat, but it's a spot at which he gained enlightenment. And we're very, very fortunate um, in that you can go to Bodhgaya uh, in uh, eastern India and at Bodhgaya there's a temple complex called the Mahabodhi Temple Complex. And in that temple complex, um, as well as uh, uh, a very lovely um, stupa, which is the temple itself, uh, there's a tree, and it's said to be a direct descendant of the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha sat when he gained enlightenment. Uh, It's said to be a descendant of that tree. It's a magnificent tree, actually. It's uh, a a huge uh, sort of overspreading uh, tree. And then underneath the tree, you can see a sort of polished sandstone platform Uh, and that polished sandstone platform uh, doesn't have anything else on it. It doesn't have a figure of the Buddha on it. It's just a a bare platform, and that marks the spot where the Buddha is said to have sat to gain enlightenment. That is the Vajrasana, the historical Vajrasana. And uh, we've got sort of archaeological evidence to say that it probably is pretty near, if not exactly, the right spot. Um, uh, The first temple at that site was constructed by the emperor Ashoka in around the 3rd century BCE, so about a couple of hundred years after the Parinirvana of the Buddha. Ashoka uh, wanted to mark that spot and built a temple there. And... uh, couple of hundred years. In a way, it's, it seems a long time, but it's only a few generations. It's only a few generations of oral memory. And uh, it's likely that um, Ashoka was, you know, pretty accurate. Uh, the current temple um, isn't, it's on that same uh, foundation, but it dates back to, I don't know, the 5th or the 6th century. Uh, and then, of course, it was redeveloped reconstructed in the 19th century uh, by uh, the British in India. So you can see this spot, uh, and I was fortunate, well, I've been there several times, but I was fortunate, I just want to sort of say, when I first went there, I'd, I'd just been ordained, uh, almost literally, because I was ordained in India. And then shortly after my ordination, uh, a group of friends of us we, and, and, and people who were on my ordination retreat went on pilgrimage. And we went to Bodh Gaya. And Bodh Gaya is not a pretty place. Uh, Bihar is not a pretty place. The state which Bodh Gaya is in is probably one of the poorest, one of the more dangerous, lawless states in India. <coughs> um, and Bodh Gaya today is pretty commercialized in a tacky sort of way. Uh, Actually, when I first went in '99, it wasn't quite so touristy, uh, not quite so commercialised. But I didn't really know what to expect. I I just kind of we just turned up. Uh, I was in a way still in a sort of positive aftershock of my ordination, and then being at Bodhgaya, it was like a double sort of aftershock. I didn't quite know what to expect, and the Dalai Lama had just been at Bodhgaya couple of days before we arrived and he'd left by then but consequently there were thousands of Tibetan monks who were still in town and uh, they they I mean they looked very resplendent in their maroon robes uh and they'd basically just taken over the temple uh and you know we sort of turned up and I kind of thought oh my am I allowed am I allowed here um But we kind of made our way through, and uh, for me, one of the most um, wonderful memories is that I was able to lead a puja, the first puja that I'd ever led as an order member, uh, sitting next to the Vajrasana, uh, sitting next to the Vajrasana, and we uh, did a sevenfold puja, those of us who were gathered, uh, one evening. Uh, And that was just, uh, well, it's in a way, I don't know if um, I was fully aware of how... Mythically important that was for my own practice, but but it it reverberates uh, in my heart still. Uh, And then one of the wonderful things about these Tibetan monks um, was that um, every evening they would light uh, butter lamps. um, uh, And not just a few, but tens and tens of thousands of butter lamps all over the temple complex. Every flat surface would be covered with butter lamps that were just glowing. Um completely magical, a complete magical spectacle. I've been back to Bodgaya a couple of times and I, I I initially thought, oh well that's what they do all the time. But they don't. I've never seen it lit in such a glorious way. And the other memory I have of being at Bodgaya that was very vivid was that being at Bodgaya Being a Buddhist, going for refuge to the Three Jewels felt completely natural. It felt completely natural to be a Buddhist in that environment in a way that I hadn't realized that I'd missed. Uh, Here in England, in London, in Bethnal Green, there's nothing in the environment outside the LBC, not particularly, that says, yes, go for refuge to the Three Jewels. (laughs) There's not much. There's not much. In Bodh Gaya, almost everything points you towards the temple, and the temple complex says, yes, go for refuge to the three jewels. You, you meditate outside, you chant. It's quite natural to be doing a puja, uh, chanting, uh, people were chanting, uh, the Tiratnavandana in, you know, lots of, from Buddhists from all over the world, uh, were chanting the Tiratnavandana. And I could recognize it, even if I couldn't quite share any, any other language. Uh, with them. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I, I just thoroughly recommend going. There was one more aspect of it for me that, in a way, is more difficult to talk about, which is meditating under the Bodhi tree. Uh, there's, a, um, there's an atmosphere there which is um, very, very tangible uh, and strong. Um, and it's slightly surprising because the temple complex isn't always a serene, quiet Place You've, it's a, quite a bustling place, even with people doing pujas with loudspeakers and megaphones, and it's not always very sort of um, um, aesthetic in in a sort of from a Western perspective. And yet, uh, meditating under the Bodhi tree, even in the midst of bustle and noise and people taking pictures of you, there's a there's a there's a profound. Um, Atmosphere, uh, a vibrancy, a stillness, uh, uh, a depth which is tangible. It's it's really tangible. Um, so that for me has has been uh, well a very very special kind of well a memory, but also a sort of touchstone for for what I'm trying to do um, it, with my practice with my life. So I very very much uh, would recommend, urge, if you've not ever been on pilgrimage, to go to bodaya uh, Go um, uh, before before it becomes even more commercialised or something. It probably can't become more commercialised than it has been. But go. Uh, it's, it's still um, got this, um, well, it's still a sacred place uh, and worthy of pilgrimage, worthy of all the um, inconveniences that it might take to get there and to stay there. So, yes, I, I think we're very, very fortunate that we have got the historical Vajrasana that's actually accessible. You can see it. Yes, it's, it's sort of, you have to sort of put your nose against railings, uh, but you can see it. The Bodhi tree, a descendant, sure, but you can sit under it and it has this magic about it. Um, I remember a Bodhi leaf uh, the Bodhi leaves would occasionally i mean you 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 can 't pluck them from the tree because that would damage the tree obviously <laughs> but uh, sometimes they they um, withered the leaves fall uh, and uh there 's this sort of scrum <laughs> to to get a leaf and uh uh somehow anyway i 've got i 've got a leaf on my shrine and that that um, is uh, well it, So yes, there's this historical Vajrasana. I'd like to say more about it, but I haven't got time. I want to move on to, in a way, another way of thinking about the Vajrasana, the Diamond Throne, which is to think of it in terms of an inner Vajrasana, an inner Vajrasana that, um, in a way points to, uh, metaphorically points to our own potential to become Buddhas our own potential to become Buddhas. It's, it's the inner Vajrasana that, in a way, uh, we have to orientate our lives around. Uh, most of us either may never see the historical Vajrasana, or if we do, it will be for a short, temporary period. Uh, it's this inner Vajrasana that, that's so important. And it's possible to gain enlightenment because the Buddha did. The Buddha gained enlightenment because of his own searching and striving. He was a remarkable man, a remarkable human being. But the key thing is he was a human being. He was a human being. And and what that means is that enlightenment, whatever enlightenment is, however we conceive of it, it is within the sphere of human potential. It's within the sphere of human potential. It might be at the very edge. Well, it is. It's the outer limits of human potential. It is the the highest that a human being can uh, uh, aspire to and achieve in terms of consciousness, in terms of mind. And it is possible for every human being to move towards enlightenment and potentially gain enlightenment. Uh, were, Were that not the case, then the Buddha would, in a way, he'd just be turned into a god. Uh, That's what Hinduism does, actually. Hinduism just turns the Buddha into a god, into an avatar of Vishnu. And uh, that's sort of okay if you just want to worship, but but Buddhism isn't about just worshipping from afar. It's about moving towards so that we too can experience what the Buddha experienced. The inner Vajrasana, in a certain sense, is the most important one, in a certain sense. And my sense is, not just my sense, I mean, Bhante says this, Bhante Sangharachata says this, but it's confirmed in my own experience, is that as people practice, as we practice, uh, it's as if people become more themselves. They become more and more, if you like, individual. They become uh, more and more sort of free to just be themselves. And... uh, Probably if you've been around our Sangha for any length of time and you've got to know a few order members, you'll sort of see how different they are. Uh, order members are different, uh, very different from each other. Uh, and yet, and yet, there's a shared, there's a shared experience that in a way transcends that difference. Uh, there's a shared experience, a shared. It's it's not even just in terms of aspiration. It literally is a shared experience um, that's slightly, um, uh, well, not not easy to put into words. It's not something that you can just pin down and say, "Oh yes, they've they've taken the same vows and made the same commitment." Of course, there is that level, but there's a resonance that you can feel with somebody who's been practicing that is um, uh, more than just personal. And it's more than the personal differences. It's more than differences of temperament. Uh, uh, when I was training to be ordained, uh, somebody, um, an order member who's in a uh, leading a study group I was in, was, saying, was talking about this and saying how different order members are. And they, say, they were saying that you don't even have to like all order members. And at the time, I kind of thought... How ludicrous. Uh, of course you'd like them. They've made a commitment that they have holding to their hearts what, what you hold to your heart. How, how could you not like them? Uh, Fifteen years into the order, <laughs> my views changed. <laughs> and yet, and yet, there's this shared, deep, 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 shared um, experience, which I think... Uh, points to something mysterious about the Dharma itself. It points to something mysterious about the nature of consciousness itself. And it points to how normally when we relate to another person, we do so usually on a much, much more superficial basis, based on, uh, well, things that are, in the end, inconsequential. Recently, um, I was on a retreat with... Subuti and Vanchura, and Subuti was talking a, a little bit about a teaching of Bhante's where he talked about, um, he was talking poetically, he's talking poetically rather than literally uh, about how we can have a sense, if we practice, we can start to have a sense that there's a sort of um, meaning to our life that we are trying to unravel, unfold, allow an unfolding in space and time of a meaning to our life, even a sort of patterning to our life, that somehow, poetically, is outside of space and time, existing as a whole outside of space and time. Bante uses the um, uh, the analogy of uh, Mozart. Mozart, you know, he started composing as a five-year-old, as a five-year-old composing Masterpieces, uh, And he's said to have said, I don't know of the complete factual veracity of this, but he's said to have said that when he composed a work, a symphony, it sort of arrived to him complete. It arrived as a whole complete. And then what he did was to sort of unfold it as he wrote it down, in space and time, but the whole work was there, complete. And I, and, and Mozart, of course, uh, is is perhaps um, uh, uh, well a genius par excellence. But I suspect there's something of that that's true for most creative artists, uh, whatever whatever. Um, Uh, creative endeavour, whatever the sphere of creative endeavour, there can be a sense, I don't think it's such a lofty sense, in which the work of art is already there and is discovered. Well, what Banty is saying is that the same is true of our lives. Uh, In a sense, it's true of our lives. He uses the word gestalt to point to this... this, Uh, image of our lives that exists outside of space and time, at least metaphorically, that we're trying to unfold within space and time. And the reason I'm talking about this is because if we practice, if we want to find this inner diamond throne and be seated upon it, we have to start intuiting what this myth, for want of a better word, of our lives is, what this gestalt is, what this patterning is. Uh, Sometimes it's available to you um, in a way just out of the corner of your eye as an intuitive sense. Sometimes it appears in dreams. So, for example, I, I, a few years ago, had a dream. Where in the dream, it was one of those dreams where um, you know it's an important dream. Even even as you're having it, as it were, you know it's an important dream. And in this dream, I was shown by somebody my whole life. Uh, I was shown the whole life from birth to death, including what I was doing now. It was like an arc, and I was shown it all, and then the memory was wiped as I woke up. Uh, the memory was wiped. But there were some words that were left, which were, you have to help people. You have to help people. That was what I was left with in this dream. It was as if that was the arc of life, and uh, I don't think I'm special. I think that that sense of learning to love, for want of a better way of putting it, is the arc of all human life. Uh, not just—it's not a Buddhist thing. It's not that we have a monopoly on that. It's just that the Buddha pointed a way that is really clear. And really pragmatic and practical, and really works uh, if we want to grow uh, in in the direction of truth of meaning of real value of love, if we want to grow in terms of consciousness in terms of life itself, then we have to look for what what really resonates and and we 're going to have to keep an intuitive ear out for this because. Most of the time, it's so easy to get distracted by all the loud sounds and ads and signals that are telling us that meaning and happiness are, found, are to be found elsewhere. So I'm sure I'm not alone in having a sense that, oh yes, we're here for something. Yeah? Uh, I think it might, that sense might increase as we grow older. Uh, uh, it has for me that we're here for something. When you look back over your life, you can sort of see the blind alleys and the wrong turnings and, and, and times when you did do what you were meant to do. And uh, in retrospect, it's easier to see. I think we need to learn from that. Look back as far as you can, learn, and then project that forward. What is it of value? What's of real meaning? The Bodhi tree at um, Bodh Gaya, or well, like any tree, uh, its roots are deep. It goes down into the earth. Uh, and then, of course, it reaches up towards the sky in a, in a, in a, a beautiful way. But the Bodhi tree also uh, has branches, magnificent branches that reach out. Uh, reach out, and it's, it's a very broad spreading tree, uh, uh, really, really beautiful. And, uh, well, you could say that the inner Vajrasana that I'm talking about is analogous to the, the, the roots going down. And uh, the historical Buddha is analogous to us reaching up to to the ideal, but there is also this outward-going dimension, and that's what I want to focus on next. You could say there is an outward-going, uh, for want of a better word, uh, an altruistic aspect to the Vajrasana. In a, in a certain sense, the Buddha's enlightenment was only fully complete, in a certain sense, when he started to communicate the Dharma and when it was heard, um, when when other people uh, experienced what he experienced and understood that experience, the profundity of that experience. In a certain sense, it was only through going outward that the Buddha's own enlightenment was completed. And I think that um, that continues to be true. The Dharma isn't really the Dharma, unless there's an aspect of it which is about reaching out, which is about reaching out to others. Otherwise, it's not the Dharma. Uh, Of course, there are other aspects to the Dharma, but an essential aspect is reaching out to others, to try and help others. And the world needs the Dharma. Goodness, it needs it more than ever. It really does need the Dharma. Just the events of, the horrible events in Paris the, the atrocities in Paris of the last few days and weeks um, well it makes any of us who have been practicing the Dharma realize how much the world needs a Dharma. You know watching some I've been trying to watch and listen and read about some of the debates that have been going on about <coughs> the values of free speech and, 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 and so on and um, one of the things that you know, occurs to me is, well, we live and France is and many other countries, fortunately, are a liberal democracy. And I feel very, very grateful for one to be living in a liberal democracy where I can practice uh, my religion, I can live my life, I can think my thoughts and I can be free to share them. I feel very fortunate. I think liberal democracy is something to be really, really proud of and it's precious and needs protecting. But if a liberal democracy, if a a democratic society, if it's underpinned by nothing more than let's all get wealthier, if it's underpinned by nothing more than a, 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 a crude materialism, then that cannot be enough to provide human fulfillment. That cannot be the epitome of what human beings are here for. It cannot be. And I think what we 've seen what we're seeing increasingly is this kind of battle between a liberal democratic but but in a sense uh, uh, um morally rather empty society against uh, a religious fundamentalism a uh, and a dogma that's intolerant and uh, believes that it has transcendent values when actually it's just clinging, literally, uh, in a in a completely, um, uh, well, insidious and and often hateful way. Neither of those you can debate them, uh, uh, each of those, but neither of them is is can be the answer. Neither of them can be the answer. Um, in terms of a liberal democracy, just today, uh Oxfam, while well, I was reading the report that Oxfam have issued, uh, reading the headlines at least, um, that says that soon the richest 1% of the population, the world's population, will have more wealth than the rest of the world put together. The richest 1% will soon have more wealth than the rest of the world put together. Uh, a democracy, a, a liberalism that just promotes and fuels that sort of inequality. Um, well, it's actually on 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 a very dangerous path, uh, as well as being morally really suspect. It's on, a, it's on a dangerous path. One of the things that Subuti has been very keen on, I once asked him, we were on a council retreat, and I once asked him what did he think the next step for the LBC was. He's the president of our centre, I thought it was only polite to ask. (laughs) And uh, what did he think the next step was? And he, um, uh, uh, as only Sabuti can do, went into a disquisition that lasted for about half an hour about the state of the world and its value systems. Um, And, and, you know, I was writing all down, as was everybody else, as he talked about the BRIC countries and nationalism and the rise of fundamentalism and... Uh, and how uh, Western democracy was actually pretty feeble in the, in the face of much more um, potent, powerful forces. But one of the things he said is that, yes, so we finally got him back to what, what do we do at the LBC? And he very audaciously and ambitiously said we needed to redefine democracy uh, so that it was imbued with moral values based on the law of karma. And uh, at the time, I was sort of looking for an easy answer, like, should we do more classes for young people? (laughs) That was the sort of limit of my ambition. (laughs) Uh, But increasingly, I think, oh, yes, he's right. He's right. Uh, And the events of the last two weeks say that he's right. We do need to be doing something. All of us who have uh, access to the Buddha's teaching need to be... Uh, speaking out with a Buddhist perspective, with a Buddhist voice. So, for example, the recent debate on freedom of speech, you know, I really, really think freedom of speech is a fantastic value. Uh, it, It really does need upholding and protecting. And as I say, I feel fortunate to be in a country that values it. But the recent debate has focused on rights, not on duties. It's Uh, at least the the debate that I've heard, has tended to focus on the right to say what you want, or write what you want, or draw what you want, rather than on the responsibilities that go with such a freedom. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that violence can ever be justified. Violence cannot be the solution. And in this case, the atrocities that were committed were barbaric, they're outrageous, they're disgraceful, there can never be, in my mind, any justification for them, religious or otherwise. There's never any justification for that sort of violence. Uh, interestingly, actually, even, even, um, the taking of offense, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, offense, hasn't there? And, 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 um, uh, uh, the taking of offense. Well, from a, from a, I, Sort of from an um, ideal Buddhist position, if we were really <coughs> practicing, even taking offense is an unskillful <coughs> act, because it's a reaction, <coughs> yeah? based on egotism, based on me. So even taking offense, let alone reacting to offense with killing people, uh, is, is uh, unskillful, to say the least, to say the very, very least. But then, but then. So, having said that, the Buddha Dharma would say that giving offence for its own sake is also unskillful. Just provoking, just to give offence, without a deeper motivation for truth, is also unskillful. Yeah, the motivations behind that cannot be what what we're trying to achieve in as a as a as a as a, as a race as a. as a a fellowship. Voltaire has been quoted several times, hasn't he, as saying this, um, uh, you know, his quote about um, he may disagree with somebody saying something, but he would defend to the death Mm -hmm. uh, their right to say it. Well, Voltaire also said this. He said, what is tolerance? It is the consequence of humanity, we are all formed of frailty and error. Let us pardon reciprocally each other's folly. That is the first law of nature. Forgiveness is what he's pointing to. And that's Voltaire too. And that reminds us, of, doesn't it, of the words of the Dhammapada, the fifth verse in the Dharmapada. Not by hatreds are hatreds ever pacified here in this world. They are pacified by love. This is the eternal law. That's the, uh, for the last week or so, that's the verse that we've had on the blackboard outside. And I think it's a very, very appropriate verse to keep coming back to. There's also a sutta in the Pali Canon in the Majjima Nikaya called the Abhayaraja Kumara Sutta, uh, where the Buddha talks about um, speech. And I think this is pertinent in, in this current debate. So although this is a bit of a digression, I hope you'll forgive me the digression. In this sutta, the Buddha says that he always speaks the truth. If something is untrue, he's not going to say it. Yeah? So he only ever speaks the truth. However, he doesn't speak the truth regardless of the consequences. He first of all weighs up whether it's beneficial to speak the truth or whether it's going to be harmful to speak the truth. If it's harmful, he will remain silent. Only if it's beneficial will he venture into speaking the truth. But even then, he weighs up something further. He says, is the truth going to be pleasing to hear? Is it going to cause pleasure or displeasure? Is it going to be pleasing or not be pleasing? Yeah, And this criterion... He, he, what he does is he says, if it's pleasing, he'll just speak the truth. He'll just say it. But if he knows that it's going to upset people, and yet it's going to help, it's beneficial in the long run, but it will be upsetting to hear, then what he does is he looks for the right time to say it. Yeah? So that's a, that's an enormous amount of care about the consequences of one's actions. It's an enormous amount of consideration about the consequences of, one act- of one's actions. So I'm giving this as an example because what I'm trying to say is that Buddhism has something to say about our current society that is really needed, is really valuable. In fact, I think it's desperately needed and people are dying and being murdered because they don't have the views that Buddhism would, 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 um, uh, uh, teach I know, that, I know that in a way giving a talk or just sharing some views isn't enough but we do need to make a Buddhist voice heard and one of the best ways that we can do that is by practicing the Dharma ourselves as deeply as we can and then sharing it with others going out, spreading the Dharma somebody was recently talking to me about engaged Buddhism and saying uh, that you know, they were all for engaged Buddhism and uh, much of what spreading the Dharma was, was, was not. By implication, they were saying that it wasn't. And actually, I think that's just wrong. That's just wrong. In, there's no such thing as unengaged Buddhism or disengaged Buddhism. Buddhism has to involve an altruistic dimension. Spreading the Dharma is that altruistic dimension, not the only way of expressing altruism. helping people, but it's an essential way and the world really needs it and if we're helping spread the Dharma, that is engaging, that is engaging so I think that's really important, that's really really important to remember (coughs) and in a way that's why we're doing this Vajrasana project it's a bit daunting at the moment because we've um, demolished it, we've (laughs) demolished our old retreat centre and, and that is actually the result of a lot of hard work and quite a lot of money <laughs> has gone into this stage of the project where now we don't have a retreat centre. Uh, it's, it's flattened, uh, mostly. Uh, the reason that we're going to rebuild it, the reason that it's going to be a bigger, better, more beautiful retreat centre, isn't so we, more of us, than just have a pleasant week or two or ten days, where we can relax in the countryside. If that was why we were doing it, if that was what a retreat was, I wouldn't be interested. I really wouldn't be interested. And it wouldn't be worth the money and the time and the effort that it's taking and will take. A retreat is an intensification of practice, and all practice is about transforming our minds and thereby transforming our lives and transforming our actions in the world. A retreat is so that we can come off retreat and be better human beings in the world. That's what I'm interested in. And the fact that we will soon, well, I say soon, it will be at least a year, have a retreat centre which can take 60 people rather than 35 people and offer more people that experience of seeing their own potential, their own human, innate human potential... I think is worth really striving for. I think it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an altruistic project and it's an important project. And I know it's tiny. Sixty people, a retreat centre for sixty people in this world is tiny. It's tiny, but it's not insignificant and it's not inconsequential. If each of us go deeper in the Dharma, we affect everybody that we come into contact with. That's not inconsequential. Yesterday we had an open day here at the centre, and uh, I had a mixed response. Uh, I was heartened that there were so many people. I was heartened. There were Well, there were so many people, we had to keep turning people away. Some of you were here probably yesterday. Um, there were people queuing in the bookshop and out into the courtyard, and we had to say, sorry, we haven't got room. People had to be turned away for every event. Uh, That's what I'm told. Uh, That's heartening and, in a way, a real shame. I mean, I really hope that they'll come back. All I'm saying is that um, not only does the world really need the Dharma, but increasingly people are receptive to the Dharma. That's, That's my experience. And we need to be spreading the Dharma. And either we do that directly by teaching or we support ways of spreading the Dharma if we're not teaching. Uh, Without this outward-going aspect of our practice, Buddhism just becomes a refined selfishness. That's what I fear it becomes. And and I'm particularly concerned about that amongst people who have been practicing, well, like me, for a long time. It's so easy as... You know, I'm nearly 50. It's so easy to want to settle down and be comfortable. And I know roughly how to work with my mind to 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 the extent where I can be happy most of the time, a lot of the time anyway. Uh, and I think we've got to really watch out for that. I particularly think we've got to watch out for that as members of the Order, that we don't settle into a complacent, self-satisfied happiness that is just ignoring the need for the Dharma in the world. So I just urge you to look at what you can do individually and in groups uh, as part of the Sangha, what we can do together to help spread the Dharma even more. Um, uh, we need to do that. We need to be doing that. So in a way, that's the outward-going aspect of the Vajrasana. Uh, but I want to try and talk about, try try my best anyway, to talk about another significance for the, the word Vajrasana. Uh, Subhadramati touched on it in her introduction. And this is um, the fact that the Vajrasana has a cosmic mythic significance, uh, as well as the historical Vajrasana, as well as the inner Vajrasana, as well as the Vajrasana manifesting in our altruism and our, our outward doing practice. It has a cosmic significance. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to tell you why or how, uh, but I'm going to give it a go. So mythically, the Vajrasana, the spot where the Buddha gained enlightenment, uh, is the first spot in the cosmos, as it were, the first place in the cosmos, the first um, uh, region of the cosmos to form out of chaos. And it's the last spot that will be consumed in the chaos at the end of the universe. It's the first and the last. And everything of significance in human history, from a Buddhist perspective, happens at that spot because all the Buddhas of the past, the present, and the future, and mythically there are many, many Buddhas, Shakyamuni Buddha, the Buddha of our time is just one in a long line of Buddhas. Mythically, all the Buddhas of the past, present and future have gained enlightenment on that spot. It is the centre of the cosmos. It's the centre of the spiritual universe. And that has significance. It's not just a fanciful story, even though it is told in poetic and mythic terms. I think there's something deeply significant, deeply uh, mysterious and meaningful that has been pointed to by that. Of course, it's one of the things it's pointing to is that enlightenment is, in a way, the centre of what it is to be a human being. Uh, it's at the heart of what it is to be a human being. And thank goodness for that. Thank goodness it's enlightenment and not, um, oh, I don't know, having a nice house or whatever else uh, our aspirations might tend to. It's at the heart of what it is to be human. It is, in a sense, pointing to what it is to be truly human. But also, um, I think there's an, there's another way of looking at this. Um, uh, well, on the shrine, we've got the Buddha Ratshobhya, this archetypal Buddha Ratshobhya, and he's holding the Vajra, the diamond thunderbolt, uh, and he's touching the earth with his right hand in the Bhumish Mudra, touching the earth. And that touching the earth mudra uh, uh, reflects an episode in uh, the Buddha's life, at least as uh, the legend has come down to us. It reflects the time when the Buddha was yet to become fully enlightened. He was sitting under the Bodhi tree on the Vajrasana and Mara, who represents all the forces inimical to enlightenment, all the forces of greed and hatred and delusion, personified, he challenges the Buddha. Uh, I mean, first of all, he tries to draw the Buddha away um, through craving, by trying to seduce the Buddha with beautiful, uh, well, his, with his daughters, beautiful daughters. Then, when the Buddha is unmoved, he attacks the Buddha, his army attacks the Buddha, and uh, symbolically it 's the forces of aversion and hatred and greed and uh, aversion and hatred and anger that are represented in that attack uh, but then finally, when the Buddha is still unmoved, Mara tries his most insidious his most insidious uh, trick. what he does is. He tries to undermine the Buddha's confidence. He says to the Buddha, what right have you to sit on the diamond throne? All the enlightened ones of the past have sat on that diamond throne. What right have you, what makes you think you're special enough to sit on this throne, to sit on this seat and think that you're going to gain enlightenment? And of course, what this does is play into the human tendency to doubt one's own potential. Uh, The Buddha-to-be Siddhartha uh, is resolute. He's completely resolute. And what he says is, I have every right to sit on this Vajrasana, on this diamond throne. I have every right because I have practiced for lifetimes. I have practiced the perfections. I've practiced altruism. I've practiced generosity. I've practiced the Dharma for lifetimes, and this in this life I'm destined to become enlightened. And of course Mara says, prove it. Uh, it's all very well to say that. Uh, there's nobody around to to testify uh, to your practice. Prove it. And what the Buddha does in response is touch the earth. And what happens is the earth splits open and a goddess emerges. The earth goddess emerges. And she is the witness, she bears testimony to the aeons that the Buddha has practiced, the Buddha-to-be has practiced. Now this legend, whether we take it literally or not, whether we believe in previous lives and future lives or not, and personally I do, whether we do that or not, it has, it has a real significance. What it's trying to say is that enlightenment is not just, or one of the things I think it points to, is that enlightenment is not just um, a sort of ordinary human affair, something that might be something that, you know, you or I choose to do with our lives, you know, orientate towards enlightenment, and somebody else might choose to uh, become a multimillionaire, and both somehow are equally valid. As goals uh, this story is pointing to the fact that no enlightenment has a significance beyond the individual human life. Bante has talked about um, a sort of intuition uh, well it 's actually more than an intuition. he says this is his experience, but he can 't prove it, and it's not it 's not it 's a poetic um, Uh, way of talking rather than a literal way of talking. What he talks about, well, he terms it cosmic going for refuge. What he says is, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, it's as if the whole of the cosmos, the whole of the evolution of the cosmos, from whenever it began, and Buddhism says that actually there wasn't a first point, the whole of the evolution of the cosmos is orientated towards manifesting ever higher degrees of consciousness. That that's what's that's what's happening. Uh, and it may not always look like that. Uh, uh, and of course it's not completely linear and simple, but it's as if the whole cosmos <coughs> wants to know itself as consciousness. Consciousness is somehow primary and the whole of the cosmos is trying to manifest consciousness at higher and higher levels. And in human beings, we've achieved, at least some of the time, self-consciousness. We've achieved a, a, a consciousness of being conscious, an awareness of being aware. We can refer to our own minds. We can change our own minds. We can, we can contemplate our own behavior, our own minds, and, and then work on them. And the Buddha has achieved transcendent consciousness in a way he's surpassed what defines a human being. If self-consciousness is one of the definitions of what it is to be human, the Buddha has transcended ordinary humanity into a consciousness that is impossible to define because it is the Buddha and yet he's not He doesn't, doesn't, an enlightened being wouldn't think of themselves as a fixed and separate entity from the rest of reality. They wouldn't think of themselves as ultimately fixed and separate. And yet they are embodied in a body that is to some degree separate. There's something deeply mysterious about enlightenment and it has some sort of reference to everything that is going on. It's not just another lifestyle choice. It's something very, very profound in the fabric of the universe itself. It's as if, in the enlightened mind, the universe recognises itself in an embodied form. It's as if it knows itself in embodied form. So, if that's true... If that's true, and it is a poetic way of talking rather than something doctrinal, but if it is true, and, and I believe that it is, then that means that at whatever level we're practicing, at whatever level we're trying to go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, it has a significance beyond our own lives. It has something of a universal significance to it. It's not just even about that individual myth or that individual gestalt. It's not even just about helping each other and creating a better world. Although it's got to, in- it's got to include that. It has something of a cosmic significance. Our trying to wake up to the nature of reality is somehow what the nature of reality, for want of a better word, wants us to do. Yeah, that's what what is ultimately what's going on everywhere. This striving towards transcendence, towards enlightenment. So I'm going to start wrapping up. So I've talked a little bit about the historical Vajrasana. I've talked about an inner Vajrasana, and that's my term. I've talked about the altruistic dimension of the Vajrasana, the outward-going Vajrasana. And I've tried to touch on this more elusive idea of the cosmic Vajrasana. And I want to urge us to, in a way, take up all four Vajrasanas as a challenge this year. Uh, It's not just about building a new retreat centre. Important though that is, all four aspects of Vajrasana are vital if we're going to have a a rounded Dharma life. So, for example, I talked about the tree being up and down and out. Without the upward dimension, the Buddha, without the Buddha, you could say without the historical Buddha, without the potential for human enlightenment that his enlightenment represents, the Dharma... Dharma practice, well, it could end up just being a psychological prop. It could just turn into a health and well-being group. Uh, Fine on its own level, but again, frankly, I could do something else with my life if that's what it descended to. Without the inward dimension, without us really practicing and trying to realize in our own experience what the Buddha experienced, without sincere practicing, well, Buddhism sort of could just descend into a hypocritical teaching, uh, particularly if we're teaching, uh, uh, particularly if we're trying to spread the Dharma and we're not really practicing We just become, well, in Zen, it's called mouth Zen. Uh, uh, We just become hypocrites. And it would be better, I think, not to have come across the Dharma at all, rather than fall into that where we, well, for me, uh, as a young man, I think I did a lot of mouth Zen. Uh, I thought of myself as a Buddhist. Uh, I bored all my friends about the Buddhist view of the world. Uh, But I didn't do a thing. I mean, apart from talk. Uh, I didn't do a thing, and read a couple of books. I didn't do a thing. And uh, I'm very, very grateful to have come across our sangha, where I feel I've been shown a way to uh, uh, practice um, and to live. And so without this inward dimension, I think it's it's not only useless, but potentially worse than useless. And then without that outward-going dimension, I've already mentioned that Buddhism could become a refined selfishness, And that's not just me talking. Um, Western Buddhism has got that tendency. Uh, Bandhi has talked about it, but Buddhists outside of our movement, Western Buddhists outside of our movement, some of them are drawing, uh, um, pointing to this danger of Buddhism becoming a refined selfishness where we're all uh, happier uh, and probably better consumers. Uh, and that's what Buddhism will give us. Yeah? So without this altruistic dimension of trying to help others, without trying to alleviate suffering in the world around us, uh, Buddhism could be just an a, a even more refined selfishness. And then without the cosmic dimension, well, it's difficult to say, but, but in a certain sense, Buddhism starts to become more like a humanism even a humanitarianism. It becomes a sort of humanism, which is a good idea. And and yes, it would be good to be more human and look after our fellow humans. Uh, but it doesn't then have anything that transcends death. It doesn't have anything to say about the context of this life in a cosmic perspective, in the context of lifetimes. And without that, it's not the Dharma. It's a sort of, benign, at best, humanism. So I'd like to urge us all this year, not just this year, but particularly this year, to be working as best we can on all four of these aspects of Vajrasana. We, we look up to the Buddha with Shraddha, with receptivity, with, or with, uh, 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 um, well, for want of a better word, faith, but Shraddha is... is um, isn't really adequately rendered by faith. Shraddha, receptivity. We look up to the Buddha with that sort of attitude. We look in, we go further in with a commitment to working on our own mind, uh, on our own uh, behavior. And then we go out with our activity, with generosity, with love, and actions of kindness. And of course, the cosmic... Well, in a way, all we can do is we use our imagination. We use our intuition. Uh, Ultimately, it will probably take insight before we know whether the cosmic dimension of the Vajrasana is a real thing or not. Uh, With insight, we might experience it for ourselves. But this year, I just urge us to include in our practice all four and see if we can just step up, step up to really help not just ourselves but the world around us which needs the dharma more than ever uh, to really see if we can give a little bit more to this magnificent project of spreading the dharma and to see if we can start to move a little bit more close to what it is to be human our own potential thank you We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.